No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and well would play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over, and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our feet. Hello and welcome to the Trade the podcast. I'm joined this week, as always, by Phil Green and Inda Higgins. Harry Leds. How are we doing? For something that was a bit of a novelty every now and then due to maybe bad weather or a blast of snow, match postponements have become rife across the Premier League and we'll be joined by the Athletics' Charlie Eccleshare a little bit later on after Arsenal had their North London derby with Spurs called off this weekend after just a single COVID case in what could well be the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to leniency around cancellations um, and patience with fans and some of uh, the clubs around the Premier League, Spurs in particular, uh, up in arms following that consolation. But for that, lads, on the Premier League front, Phil, Agent Rafa's uh, time at Everton coming to a, a swift end. Um, number of big names um, across board level and beyond falling on their swords over the past couple of months. Lucas Dina fresh off uh, at cab ride over to Villa Park following his uh, falling out with Rafa. Um, but it did feel a little bit doomed from the start. I mean, when you're in a situation where not only do you have to kind of get results and, uh, you know, get Everton um, playing well, um, you know, given the investment over the past couple of years, but when you also, one of your objectives is to is to kind of turn 90% of the fan base over to your side, um, it, it was a hugely difficult task and um, one that Rafa couldn't muster. Yeah, I think we we and we we said as much. I think at the start of the season, we all accepted that it was going to be very difficult for Rafa, and that the first sign of trouble, uh, he was probably going to lose faith a little quicker than other managers would, and he'd have less buy-in. But I think even the most pessimistic of Everton fans, and Lord knows there's a lot of them knocking around, would have struggled to have seen just how big of a shit show this would have been. I mean. Their director of medical, their head of recruitment, their uh, their manager of scouting, director of football, and one of their best players have all gone since Rafa took over. He was given complete carte blanche and then sacked three, like three days after they sell Luca Dean or whatever it is. Um, like I think the extent to which it's been a mess for um, for Everton has, has surprised even, as I said, the most pessimistic of, of Everton fans. So what was already a bad situation, what was already probably a lose-lose situation, uh, has been made all the more worse by how Mishiri has handled this with Benitez. And like there was even stories today about how Rafa was surprised at, at how much they backed him if they were going to sack him. I mean, the sacking thing was easy to see coming. It was the first kind of bad run he was going to have. He was going to find very hard to turn it around. Uh, what is surprising is the extent to which they backed him as if he was a manager that they were staking their reputation on, which nobody really felt that this was going to be a long-term fit for Everton um, and, and Benitez just given all that water under the bridge. So 
completely completely impossible task for Benitez has proven to be just that but I think the extent to which Everton have bought in on him was completely bizarre and I think speaks to a wider problem that isn't going to be fixed by a Rooney a Lampard not even a big Duncan Ferguson will fix this yeah, while to spend almost £35 million on a left-back and a right-back and then to get rid of the man who bought them in a week later. So it'd be interesting to see what they're thinking. But I think that just kind of sums up the squad mismanagement that's been going on at Everton really since Rafa came in. And of course, I'm not sure how fully responsible he is for that. But, you know, considering they transfer-listed James Rodriguez and realised that Gilfie Sigerson had... Uh, Prison FC on a CV down the line. Um, it was always going to be a bit of a problem where the actual creativity was going to come from. And the way to fix that was bring in two wingers um, at very cheap deals in terms of Townsend and Gray, who have actually been okay signings, considering it's a combined two million quid each, um, or for, for the pair rather. But it was just almost impossible to see where the creativity was going to come from. Uh, when you have Ducore and Alan, who really are kind of more sitting midfielders and who would have been perfect if they had managed to get in maybe Donny van de Beek at the end of uh, the summer window when that deal was agreed and, and pulled by Solskjaer in the last minute. But it didn't really look like they had many other backup options in case that kind of deal fell through. And that really was the start of all their problems, not to mention that, uh, like Rafa, he isn't quite the manager that he, he used to be, certainly at Valencia or Liverpool. Um, you know, he... He had a relatively strong squad in in China and, and underwhelmed there, and you know actually did okay at Newcastle, and, and a lot of fans were disappointed to see him leave. But um, he's, I think, he's a bit damaged since the Real Madrid um, sacking, and um, he just kind of looked a shadow of himself really throughout the whole process. So I don't think he'll be too disappointed that it's over. But yeah, it's been you know as Phil rightfully said at the start, a, a real shit show. Well, I'm not sure if you read his um, statement on his website, um, his personal website, uh, uh, the banner picture, um, I presume on, on, on the murder side in a bit of jeans and show action um, from a couple of years back. But uh, one line stood out to me in particular was um, the financial situation and then the players that followed um, and then the injuries that followed made things even harder. Was very much Rafa saying, you know, this is a you problem, not a me problem. Yeah, I, I, that is kind of classic Rafa in that he is very protective of his reputation and his standing in the game. He, I don't think, has ever left a place where he's felt that he was the one who was in the wrong or not capable of doing a job, even places like uh, Real Madrid and Inter as Enda mentioned earlier, which were complete disasters and objectively just not ever going to work. Uh, I don't think, like like even by the time he was leaving Liverpool, it was kind of, he was shooting at everyone on his way down after being a, a cult hero and st- still is. But I think it's very emblematic of Rafa's personality. Um, he does like to see the faults in others where, where, where at some points may be completely legitimate, don't get me wrong, but he's not very quick to recognise faults in himself. And I think, the tone, well, I don't even know if there was a tone to Everton's statement. The fact that it was like 40 words and none of them were thank you. Um, I, I don't think put him in the best of moods to be predisposed to be too kind about his time at the club either. So I think it's a little bit of Rafa always haven't had that in him, always a little bit spiky, always very willing to see faults and others rather than himself. And then how it was handled, his departure from Everton, other than the seven-figure payoff that he's going to get, which he'll be happy about. I think... Um, that statement would have stung someone who is a very proud man. Yeah, and even the fact that he has a website 
and the banner image is <laughs> is is it the list of trophies that he's won and himself looking like a Gareth mm. Brooks kind of fanboy or something like that. So he is very, as Phil rightfully pointed out, kind of aware of brand Rafa Benitez and he mm. will pretty much do whatever he needs to do to protect that. And listen, he's had a fantastic manager, managerial career. You know, you can't knock it. I mean, as well as he did at Liverpool. I mean, I think his Valencia spell is certainly one of the most underrated kind of managerial performances in the past two or three decades in Europe. Um, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But uh, he certainly does appear to be a bit of a faded force and kind of one not too dissimilar to Mourinho in, in kind of almost protecting his own brand and reputation and past success at this point rather than kind of focusing on, you know, any current or future jobs ahead. I suppose since his departure, all the news has been, uh, uh, you know, Everton kind of going down the line of, of club legends. I think Tim Cahill, um, or Cahill, as he as he used to be known over on uh, uh, <laughs> UK television. Um, I'm, you can hear my Tipperary accent coming out strongly there. But um, Duncan Ferguson, obviously, it sounds like he's going to be um, uh, stepping into a, an interim role. But even getting the like, even the the rumours with the likes of um, Roberto Man- Martinez, who was sacked back in 2016 by Mushiri, back in on, a, on an interim basis, it sounds like absolutely crazy to me. I'm sorry, like, am I mad to think that the fans were so badly uh, ready to get rid of Martinez that they were like protesting to get rid of him, right? I mean, I'm not crazy. Like, that ended horrifically. And if I'm Martinez, I don't know why I'm walking back into that situation less than a year out from a World Cup and I'm managing the number one ranked team in the world. Now, I'm not saying they're favourites for a World Cup, but Jesus Christ, like, is it really going to be worth the hassle to go back into that asylum? Uh, when he's sitting on a pretty decent number in the be- in the in the Belgian national team, and he was like hounded out of that club last time, um, it 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 feels a bit scattergun. And um, I don't like it. Does not. I don't know. Is there a sense that he has massive unfinished business? I know, like at the time that uh, that twenty thirteen fourteen season, um, I I rem- remember distinctly the night Liverpool bet them. It was a four-one or four-nil or whatever it was in uh, in the midweek derby when Daniel Sturridge scored that goal, kind of from the edge of the box against um, against him. Howard, Everton were flying at that stage, absolutely flying, and Martinez was was the second coming of Howard Kendall, and you know the Everton was Everton were back, and the People's Club were going to do things the right way, and they were going to get to the top four, and it all completely fell apart. And I I didn't get a sense there was massive unfinished business there for him, uh, so it it feels weird to have him linked especially, as I say, in the year of a World Cup when he's managing one of the leading contenders. It just doesn't feel like a move that makes sense for Martinez. And from Everton's point of view, I think it's the last thing they should be doing going backwards over old ground. I mean, he hasn't gotten as much uh, managerial credit in the bank, but even somebody like Wayne Rooney can at least be spun as kind of a forward-looking move or at least a little bit progressive in that he's a younger coach. The Martinez thing just feels weird. Um, For Everton to do, it feels like a step back into a previous version of themselves. And for him, it feels like a really weird thing to do in this year of all years. Yeah, I remember certainly the end of Bobby Martinez at Everton was very hostile from the fans. So uh, the, the surprising thing for me was apparently, according to the reports, that he he would be interested in talking to the club again if they did approach him, which made absolutely no sense to me. But I think it just shows how chaotic Everton are at the moment that they've gone from being linked to Lampard and Rooney this morning to Jose Mourinho mm. this afternoon. I mean, you couldn't get two more kind of, or, you know, diverse type of appointments if you went the Rooney-Lampard route versus 
uh, Mourinho. Um, also interesting, you know, bringing Tim Cahill potentially back into the chaos. I mean, this is a, a bit like Rafa. He has a very sensitive ego and has blocked, you know, pretty much everybody in Australian Twitter who's uh, insulted his time at Melbourne City and various activities since then. So he doesn't seem like the guy to have on the front line and to bring into a chaos or one to rely on in terms of club DNA, if, if that's what we are. Uh, referring to that potential appointment as. So I just don't really know where Everton potentially go from here. I think bringing in Rooney would obviously give them a lot of time to sort themselves out because, you know, he does have money in the bank in terms of the excellent job he's doing with Derby this season and comes across really well in all the interviews, better than he ever did as a player, ironically. Um, And of course, you know, I was going to say he's a club legend. That's that's a tricky kind of word to use when it comes to Rooney and Everton, but he certainly still has a lot of respect uh, amongst the Everton fans. Um, so that would be a potentially more interesting route to go than probably Lampard and Mourinho. But again, it feels very much scattergun at the moment in terms of what the actual plan is. I don't think there is a plan for Everton, really. I mean, as, you know, as, as we said at the start, when you're signing players for 15 and 20 million, then sacking the guy who brings them in a week later, it's, it's tough really to know where a club is going week to week, never mind who's, who's going to be managing uh, for the next few years like a right thinking club would do somebody interim till the end of the season and wait until the new director of football is in mm. and put somebody in place that chimes in with his vision because otherwise you're retrofitting uh, and it would make no sense but you know as as then just outlined their way they're operating now makes no sense so i can't imagine they're actually going to do that sensible thing uh, and actually do some joined up thinking and imagine it'll just be retrofitting square pegs into round holes yeah, and it's also slim pickings. Like we've seen with Newcastle, yeah. we've seen with United. I mean, there are not really many people out there. Uh, so you kind of have to bide your time really until the summer. Um, I was potentially thinking as an interesting route to go, rightly or wrongly, maybe looking at somebody like LVG who's been away for a while, but you know might still have a bit of something to prove in the Premier League for six months or something like that. But outside of a random left field appointment like that, I just can't see who can really come in uh, and, and kind of fix things. So, you know, would it be too damaging to go back to Duncan Ferguson after he had a relatively okay spell as interim last time? You know, I think that could be one way out just to buy themselves some time. I mean, that's really what Everton need. They just need to get to the summer at this stage because they're not really going to do much for the rest of the season. And we did say uh, in the aftermath amongst ourselves that you could make a pretty strong argument that Everton are the worst ran club in the Premier League at the moment in a league that includes Manchester United and which is uh, quite saying something but yeah. um, I mean there is a saying in, in US sport that you know dysfunctional teams stay dysfunctional and that seems to be a bit of you know a virus that's caught Everton over the past couple of years and it's really hard to see them kind of pulling themselves out of it anytime soon. Yeah well like it doesn't feel like this appointment whoever it is is going to be a magic bullet um, save for there's some sort of Leicester style miracle and he, he wins he or she wins the league next year. Um it's it's not gonna fix all the other problems. It's not gonna fix the fact that they've got ownership who will do what they've just done in terms of sacking all these senior football leaders uh to accommodate a manager who they then turn around and sack. So that's not gonna be fixed regardless of whether it's Rooney, Lampard, LVG, Klopp, Guardiola, the reincarnation of Johan Cruyff, nothing's gonna fix it. Um, it's it's going to take a change of pace and a change of thinking there. I don't know whether they're capable of it. They haven't shown themselves to be capable over the last six years. Um, they had relatively well thought of people in those positions. People like Marcel Brands had a very good reputation coming into Everton. 
uh, and they've spent money. So one of the problems they definitely don't have is in spending it and spending money and, and giving managers what they want. But it doesn't feel like this appointment is going to fix the problems that have them needing this appointment, if that makes sense. So it feels like it's a bit of a vicious circle for them at the minute. Um, an article in the Irish Times from um, our old podcast rival over at Second Captains, Canary, um, drew, you know, standard um, cam and uh, a reasoned response on online, as you can see from uh, his Twitter mentions over the past couple of days. But um, it, it has brought up a kind of an interesting conversation around Manchester City and their dominance. Um, you know, in the aftermath of the game against Chelsea on Saturday, um, Ken starts off, uh, Pep Guardiola could hardly conceal his excitement. In 180 minutes, we conceded one shot on target against Chelsea. Ah, guys, that is so good. And it's just kind of a weird, you know, response. And I think he followed that up with saying that, you know, Manchester City were obviously the better team. They deserved to win. Whereas against Arsenal, where they got a late winner um, um, with Rodri, obviously, you know, going over to the Arsenal fans, getting pelted with, you know, rubbish onto the field. But that, those are the kind of moments that you kind of stick with you. And, you know, in those kind of end of season montages are, are what's going to you know strike a chord in your memory when uh, when you're watching things back but I mean obviously if you're a Manchester City fan reading this article you're going to be absolutely outraged um, at what Ken's trying to convey but it is it is kind of an interesting one and I suppose you know when you look at some of the, the teams that have dominated over the course of the past 20 or 30 years in the Premier League you look at the two or three Manchester United sides and Phil, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll feel my pain here, but you know you just wanted them to lose so badly that you were invested in them. You know they weren't, you know the kind of the big baddie. If you weren't a Manchester United fan, you know you prayed for their demise with Sir Alex Ferguson. It felt like it was never ever going to come. Um, the Arsenal invincible side were 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 obviously fantastic, and you could appreciate the players that they had. You could appreciate Thierry Henry, etc. And then the Chelsea side under Jose Mourinho uh, in his first stint. I mean, you had characters like John Terry and Frank Lampard, you know, who kind of, you know, were easy to hate figures. Um, they had some fantastic players, obviously, come and go during that period. Whereas the City side, they're, they're just, they're so good that it's just kind of, you know, you know, you kind of have to shrug your shoulders at it. I mean, yeah, you know, like that's it. You know, you just get on with it. There's no real kind of spark. Well, obviously, they have an unbelievably, insanely talented squad. Um, but it just seems a little bit, you know, unspectacular when you're when you're a bit of a neutral or you're a rival fan where you don't really hate them. You know, you can respect them. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to win the league. But with 90, 100 points and, and, and you know, that's what it's going to be like for the, for the next couple of years. I, I think the big thing and like I, I really enjoyed the piece and I've been thinking about it a little bit since I read it. I think the big thing for me is the kind of removal of jeopardy. I think is 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 the key to it. So, like you mentioned that Arsenal game, uh, that they didn't deserve to win, but did. Uh, there was jeopardy in that. You think of the games that, like, categorize or sorry, uh, that that um characterized this City team under Pep, and they're actually a lot of the Champions League games that they lose because there's jeopardy there because Pep does his weird overthinking thing. But there's like there, there's not even moments to hang their hat on a lot in a lot of leagues that they've won. I mean. The you know fourth goal in a five nil win against Burnley being a ball across the byline from the full back that Sterling taps in. I mean that's the same as it's been for five years. It, there's just a, a lack of jeopardy and th- their excellence is such 
and they they have gotten everything in the right shape, in the right way. They spent a couple of years laying the groundwork for Guardiola, bringing in the people behind the scenes and on the pitch that he wanted. He came in, in into the perfect, almost lab conditions, uh, unlimited resources, and the result has been exactly what you'd expect the result to be, and very often it's not all that exciting. I mean, you, you talk about those other teams, the big teams from, from the other Premier League eras, United, United's couple of teams under Fergie, three teams really, like three eras of great teams. The first one with with Bruce and and Mark Hughes and the lads, the treble winning team and the Ronaldo Rooney Tevez team, if you want to call it that. Those three teams, for as good as they were and they were excellent, they either had a rival like Arsenal around the treble era, or there was at least some element of fallibility, some element of personality, whether that be driven by Fergie, by Keane, by Cantona, by Ronaldo, by whoever. It just feels a bit kind of laboratory conditions with this city team. Like even you think about the eighteen nineteen league title that they won with a hundred with uh, with was a hundred points they got that year, um, and Liverpool finished second on ninety seven. Title went down to the last day of the season. An absolutely ridiculous level of achievement from those two sides. I think there was one week probably for the neutral that, that title race was enjoyable. It was when Origi scored late against Newcastle, and then Company scored his ridiculous goal. Uh, against Leicester like the the rest of it was just saw two sides winning every week and you didn't even need to watch their games because you knew Man City were going to win three or four nil Liverpool might win as comfortable they were going to win City have exercised such a level over this league that even for somebody to have competed with them like Liverpool did in two seasons really it took Liverpool to us to a level where they weren't as exciting so like Liverpool 2017-18 were not as good as they were in 1819 or 1920, but they were definitely more exciting. They were because there was a level of jeopardy. So, yeah, Salah and Manic could do something really exciting, but you had jeopardy at the back because it was more high wire. They were trying things uh, with a little bit more kind of intensity and they were they were taking more chances. Whereas they evolved to a stage because City made them evolve to a stage where games went one or two nil and that was it and you could fold your tent and go home. And it's the same with City now. They've gotten to such a level of excellence with a level of resources that nobody else can match and kind of a five, ten year plan to be in a, this exact position. It's nearly like a sign, it's nearly an algorithm to have gotten to this point that the jeopardy being missing means that it's actually just not that exciting unless you happen to be a City fan and like, listen, knock yourself out, have a great time about it. But I just don't, they can't pretend that it's as exciting for the general football fan as even was the case with big teams like United, like Jose's pantomime villains with Chelsea. Um, it's it's just that level of jeopardy that's missing. Yeah, I I think the way Pep approaches the game as well probably, you know, works against him. His, his greatest strength could arguably be his, you know, greatest weakness. And Phil, interesting mentioned that, you know, the Champions League match are always more interesting because he, he will do that random thing where he'll, you know, leave De Bruyne out against Spurs away for no logical reason at all, trying to seem seemingly pack the midfield or something like that, just needlessly overthinking things. Um, but he never has fully seemed to enjoy the process of being at Man City. I mean, I look back at 2009, for example, when uh, Iniesta scored at Stamford Bridge and he, you know, he ran down the touchline. He just, he just seemed to have such a strong kind of emotion towards that Barcelona team in a very positive way. He, he never looked kind of as, as stressed out as he does. You know, it almost reminds me a bit of, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched the Brian Clough documentary on uh, on ITV. It's on YouTube now. It's absolutely brilliant. But they talk about kind of 
you know, when he won the second Champions League with North Forest, but he was older and he was more stressed and all this pressure that had come compared to kind of his Derby County days or um, things like that or his early Nottingham Forest days. And, and I kind of feel a bit like that with Pep, kind of that pressure of being Pep Guardiola and having to succeed all the time and so many people kind of rooting for him to fail. And, and you know, then you throw in this kind of passive-aggressive responses and that kind of weird mannerisms he has in interviews anyways, no matter whether they've won or lost. Um and it, it kind of works against them and, and then you see them win titles and it's just hard to feel any, not necessarily positive emotion about that, but even like, you know, I could appreciate kind of Liverpool under Klopp because they all seem to be enjoying themselves so much, you know what I mean? And that's the best part of it, whereas it almost feels like City fans don't even enjoy it half the time, you know what I mean? He's he's tried really, really hard to you know build this emotion with City fans and getting them to pack out the stadiums because he feels like almost insulted that... He doesn't have a full stadium to appreciate the team and the work that he's done. And listen, he's done a phenomenal job. And, and one thing I think City do deserve a huge amount of credit for is they could have blown an awful lot of money on dubs like other teams in the league have, most notably their rivals in the city. But, you know, when you when you look at the quality of, of, of their transfers, you know, and the fees they've spent aren't actually insane, you know, you look at the Bernardo Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, back to the earlier days of company, those type of signings, Yaya Torre, David Silva. Um, those are very reasonable price transfers that were all huge successes in the Premier League. And I think that deserves a, a lot of credit. But um, that aside, it just feels like there's something missing with Pep. I don't know if it's that emotion or that enjoyment and, and people kind of feed off of that um, and fans feed off of that as well. So when they do fail in the Champions League or when they do have a bad result, you know, people seem to enjoy it that much more. And then, of course, there is that undercurrent of the fact that, you know, there, there are the links to Qatar and their owners and and whether the fans want to admit that, that will always be held against them, kind of, that'll always be the undertone of the criticism as well towards them, rightly or wrongly, towards Pep. But um, I think, you know, Phil made a really good point, whereas, you know, you, you don't feel any kind of emotion or danger or threat that somebody's going to do something stupid at Man City like they would in the other teams even the successful Premier League teams that we've seen down the years it's all very clinical and precise and very impressive but it's tough to find too much emotion towards it as well and I think Pep kind of reflects that um, and I think it's a shame because you know he should be enjoying you know a phenomenal job that he has done at City and, and deserves a lot of credit but it just never feels like he is too much and I suppose, you know, one thing the article did do was it kind of looked through it in, in the Premier League prism, whereas, as Phil mentioned, you know, there is a lot of infallibility with them when it comes to domestic football. But, you know, I do get the impression that Pep kind of turns into the coach from the water boy when it comes to European football. Um, and, you know, he's just kind of so <laughs> driven demented by, by trying to win it that he never will. And I think that's probably... You know, the one thing that you know, maybe we could point to this Manchester City side is they haven't gone over the line yet in, in Europe um, in in spectacular fashion in some ways, like the Leon result, for for example, um, and the lineup he chose for that one um, was absolutely absorbed. Um, and, and it was, you know, it, it, it is those kind of scenarios that you're kind of clutching at straws with City, whereas, you know, if it's a Premier League three o'clock fixture, you can guarantee they're going to smash someone four or five nil and that'll be it. Um, I think one of the main things, you know, looking at some of the replies on Twitter, you know, City fans saying, you know, you never complained about Barcelona when they were doing similar, you know, they were dominating teams, they were, you know, keeping huge amounts of possession. But that Barcelona era had Lionel Messi and it had Xavi and Iniesta and it had, you know, it wasn't a hugely 
packed depth of a squad that, you know, they could replace guys in and out willy-nilly. I mean, you had Carlos Puyol and Gerard Piquet and, 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 you know, really great players for their time who were playing at such a peak level um, and Pep had them running, in, 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 you know, at such an amazing level. You know, not like where we look at City and, you know, if you want to point at their, you know, best player, it's probably undoubtedly Kevin De Bruyne, but, you know, he's missed... I think half the amount of time this season and he's missed quite a few games over the years. Um, I mean, Jack Grealish has been um, completely anonymous since since he left Villa and, you know, we all enjoyed watching Grealish last year. He's been completely anonymous at City and, you know, you forget he's there. You know, Maris can come in and out of a side. Um, you know, if he, if he had never joined City um, from Leicester at that time, would he have still had the success to have? I think they probably would have. Um, you know they've completely disregarded strikers and, and and have done okay. So it's it's kind of a weird um, argument to try and make. I think when when you know City fans you know pointed that Barcelona era under Pep, you know I think it's completely different. And and then the, you did say you know he did seem to enjoy that era more. But I think you know what he was doing with that particular group of players. Um, was you know a world of difference compared to what he has done with City and this kind of this revolving door of um, unbelievable talent where you know he can just pick and choose whoever he wants of a Saturday and and get the same result. Completely. I mean, like what sums up quite well for me about City and that kind of ridiculous depth is they basically just kept buying fifty million right backs and left backs until they found ones that actually worked. So like they just it didn't matter to them. Like they could just keep affording to take these punts that didn't work and just stockpile them. And like somebody like Bernardo Silva, who um, at, at the kind of height of Liverpool keeping pace with Man City again, like 2018-19, Bernardo Silva was potentially emerging as their most important player when De Bruyne was missing games. He was incredible. And he would have left this summer if there was a suitable buyer. They completely cast aside. Where it's unthinkable for, for other teams, nearly any other team in Europe, for somebody who is so central to an achievement like a 98-point season, as it was the case in 1819, or a 100-point season, as it was a couple of years before, for him to be so out of favour and not missed in any way that he could have left out the back door and no one would have noticed. I mean, Mo Salah leaving Liverpool will be massive news if and when it happens. If Robert Lewandowski all of a sudden was superseded by just sheer weight of numbers of like three or four other players who all of a sudden were just performing better than them, that would be massive news. Whereas with City, it just feels natural. These players become like the focal point for the team. Bernardo Silva, uh, Raheem Sterling is another one who is on his way out by all accounts, who was absolutely central to what they were doing two years ago. And it just doesn't feel like it really matters. There's not a defining player in that team. Like I think you make a great point on De Bruyne. He's missed so much that though he's their best player, he doesn't define them in the way that company and Yaya Torre defined the pre-Guardiola era and uh, the kind of Mancini-Pellegrini era. There's no kind of players that feel like emblematic of this City team. It feels like one kind of conglomerate. It like it, it, it just it feels like an experiment, a laboratory experiment or like uh, like if Google did a football team. Like it feels like this like mass-produced thing that was like designed to within an inch of its life and like algorithmed out the wazoo to like solve football it feels a bit like a supercomputer and it's just not as fun as you know big personalities players you can really get into hating 
managers who act a dick. I mean, like all that <laughs> stuff that like made the other big teams. So like, like Ferguson, like you, Kev, like Alex Ferguson helped ruin my childhood, and like it was really easy to hate him. And like that, <laughs> the United teams were full of players that you could really get behind hating. Same with the Chelsea team, who were probably the closest in terms of like the kind of quote unquote boring style that Mourinho had. It was very conservative and of its time. But like they were chock full of players you just absolutely despised. You just don't have City don't elicit that much of an emotional feeling in people. They just, it just doesn't get their pulses going. It's like you know a, a piece of music that like a record label writes based on like TikTok trends. Like it's just like to be consumed when you're kind of half paying attention, and or like a Netflix movie that's written by algorithm. Like it's just like content and cotton candy for your face and. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know where it ends. It's a pity because so many of these players are so incredible. They're clearly executing an incredible game plan from a brilliant coach. And, like, I think earlier in Guardiola's reign, I think people were happier to say, look at these really pretty passes. Isn't it great how they can always score the same goal? But now we're, like, five years deep in it. And we're like, Jesus Christ, I am fucking sick of it. Yeah, I, I think another potential issue is the inevitability of it all, really, that even if Guardiola was to go this summer, they'd probably go and get Ten Hag and they'd probably just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Whereas at least with, you know, with Liverpool, you thought, right, Cancel and Mane really, you know, produced that level that they did, particularly in that was 18-19 season. Um, you know, you felt, right, this has a shelf life. They won't last forever. Um, and there's a bit of kind of almost hope in that. Whereas with City, it's such, as Phil said, like, this machine that just keeps producing over and over again with no real kind of end or, you know, mad disaster in sight. Uh, yeah, they might have years where they don't win the Premier League, but it just never feels like it's this, the start of a capitulation or a clear out or they're going to do something stupid. So I think there's an element to that as well. And it also kind of, again, creates this lack of emotion towards them. You can't even enjoy any potential downfall that they may have because they'll inevitably just end up fixing it again and get back on the horse. And uh, I think there's definitely an element to that as well. Some good news on the Irish front end, lads, at the weekend. Adam Ida getting his first Premier League goal. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the uh, article in the 42. Gavin Cooney did a good analysis on his performance against Everton. Um, he was so involved. And I think mm. it's something that he's kind of teased uh, in certain Irish performances. You know, he, he looks the part, but he really hasn't had the kind of the good run of form. And now that's three starts in a row, I think, at Norwich. Um, he's up front alongside Timo Pukki. Um, and he seemed to be kind of forging a, a pretty decent partnership there for Norwich. Um, he was very good by all accounts against West Ham. Um, and I mean, he's still only 20 years of age. And I think it, it, we, we've kind of yearned for him to, to get going in, in front of goal for so long now. It feels like he's a, he's a seasoned international, but he's still learning his trade. Um, and I think the signs are absolutely there that he does have a lot of the characteristics um, of a potentially really, really good striker. Um, if not in the Premier League, definitely in, in the higher end of the Championship. I mean, you look at um, Dominic Slenke as, a, as an example at Bournemouth, who's gone on to absolutely bang in the goals this season and, and, and lift Bournemouth towards um, promotion back into the Premier League. But um, great sign to see him get on, get the, get his first goal. And um, it does look like that he's going to be uh, given a run of games at Norwich and you know be given the opportunity to, to help them somehow survive relegation, although the, the odds are probably against them at this stage. Yeah, I completely agree. It's great to see him, um, and and to take a relatively difficult chance, um, in in kind of such a smart and kind of 
quick way was great as well. It's not the type of goal I think that I expected a player desperate for his first Premier League goal to score, if that makes sense. He'd had the bad touch. It's very easy for that ball just to fucking bobble in into Pickford and that's it. But he did, the kind of reaction, the little deft little dink, I thought, thought it was it was quite encouraging. But I think what you say is really important. He scored his first Premier League goal and hopefully he stays in the team from now until the end of the season. But Norwich being relegated and him going down to the Championship at his age should not be cause for massive panic. It would probably actually do him better, I think, if they did go down and he was able to establish himself as a kind of a a, a, a first choice there, that could do him better, uh, do him more good in the long run than kind of what he'd had in the first half of this campaign, which was very sporadic involvement uh, in a in a Premier in a kind of re- relegation battle in Premier League side. I think a little bit of confidence at a slightly lower level, start scoring a few goals, and maybe build himself up to a move or or, or promotion again with Norwich, whichever. But I think time is on his side sufficiently and. I think, listen, Ireland in its football history is not short of strikers who do loads of brilliant work off the ball and loads of brilliant hold-up work with the ball, uh, but can't score goals. I mean, we only need to look at Shane Long and like his continued presence in the Premier League and his kind of one goal every January and then that's it for the rest of the year. Um, like He's been an incredible servant at every club he's been. But like Ireland have had enough Shane Longs in recent years. We kind of start mm. to need to find somebody who's scoring goals. And... If if Ida has to go down a level and score kind of fifteen to twenty goals for Norwich next season in the championship with an eye to get promoted back with them or getting a move when he's twenty two back into the Premier League, I'd have absolutely no issues with that. I think his development is what matters now and it might service him to play the slightly lower level just to kind of get himself moving in front of goal. Because as you've said, Kevin, as he's shown in big games for Ireland, he has a lot of the other stuff there already. He's he has an he's brilliant hold of play, brilliant touches with the ball, very intelligent in terms of how he brings people and get people involved. Uh, it's just that extra piece that we need, I think, at the kind of point the end of our team. We do need a goal threat, and if it and I think it's there for Ida if he if he's able to develop that because Kenny's a fan. I think the space is there from to kind of grab it if he can, and but he has time. So if he, if he takes. 18 months to get back to the Premier League or two years to get back to the Premier League but he comes at like an 18 goal championship campaign I think that would be great Yeah absolutely um, and he's at such a crucial stage of his development next season in particular um, I mean and it feels like we've been crying out for him to really get this run at Norwich and for some reason earlier in the season it just wasn't coming even after that brilliant performance in Portugal where I was just blown away with the quality of his game um, that night and um, if you look at kind of who he's competing with at Norwich particularly Josh Sargent and the fact that Pukki's you know in his 30s now it was really crying out for somebody like Ida to come in and just give them a lift and give them some more energy Norwich have just looked so flat in so many of their games so the fact that he'll have a season in the championship or most likely have a season in the championship next season and hopefully starting week in, week out, um, you know, when he's just turning 21, such a crucial year in his development, I think he could easily be a striker who scores 15, 20 goals next season. Um, and then, you know, who knows what he can achieve from there. But it's just really exciting time for Irish football in general. I mean, it just feels like every week somebody's doing something really, really exciting uh, across the board, you know, um, whether it's Josh Cullen, Ida, Benny, uh, Robinson. So, uh, Bazuna is obviously having a phenomenal season on loan as well and it'll be really interesting to see how he progresses um, or what City's plans are for him going forward 
But uh, no, it's really exciting times. And, you know, I was lucky enough to actually watch the game out on Saturday and he really was phenomenal for the full match. There was a nice highlights package of him posted by, I think, Kenny's kids uh, this evening, uh, every touch he had in the game. And it really was a brilliant number nine performance. It wasn't just a goal. It was absolutely everything he did. And even though Everton, as we've talked about, Irish shambles, um, it was still, you know, definitely his best performance for Norwich by far. Delighted to be joined by Charlie Eccleshare of The Athletic to try and make sense of the COVID-19 postponements that have rampaged through the Premier League in recent weeks. Charlie, thanks for coming on. Hope you're well. No problem. Thank you for having me. So it feels like the Premier League opened up a bit of a Pandora's box, really, when they introduced the postponement guidelines for COVID-19 and they kind of stretched it in such a way that both injuries and African Cup of Nations departures could contribute to a team's case um, for cancellation. Um, but it all kind of came to a head, really, with Arsenal's move to cancel the North London Derby this weekend off the back of, um, I think it was one single COVID case at the time. Charlie, the backlash has been widespread. I mean, Arsenal have kept fairly coy. Spurs naturally are up in arms. I'm sure you'd rather be talking about the actual football this week, but it it really has been a bizarre run of events. And, and I think patience is really starting to wear tin now across the league. Yeah, well, that was definitely um, the sense. We, we did a big piece on The Athletic uh, on one up on Monday um, based on conversations uh, we had with people kind of at the top level uh, of the game, you know, amongst Premier League clubs. And yeah, there was widespread fury and rage. I mean, it's funny because it wasn't too dissimilar from what was playing out on social media from supporters, you know, uh, the same kinds of gripes, the same feeling that um, a line has been crossed. I mean, and again, like with fans, a lot of the anger was more at the Premier League than at Arsenal necessarily because... What Arsenal did was technically within the rules. Um, you know, they met the threshold. But as you say, the fact that when they made the application, they only had one positive COVID case, they have subsequently had another. But that was after the decision was made by the Premier League. So the, the Premier League made the decision based on just one COVID case. It felt like um, a tipping point from already a situation that there's been quite a lot of scepticism about in a sense that teams were, you know, playing hard and fast with the rules. So, yeah, definite sense um, yeah, that a line had been crossed. Well, initially, I mean, when the, this started happening just before Christmas where um, submissions were being made to the Premier League to cancel games, um, I think Burnley were caught a couple of times. Um, there was seemed a little bit of confusion over what constituted, say, a threshold to, to mm. be within a team's rights to cancel um, a game initially, I think everyone's assumption was that you would need, you know, a fair chunk of COVID nineteen positive cases. But when it became kind of known that injuries were 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 being counted, African Cup of Nations recently, um, players who have departed for for the competition, they're also being counted. Um, it does feel like you know they've really stretched the rules, and teams kind of are taking advantage of it. And I suppose when you do have your your first team squad stressed as much as you, as that. What well, you know? Why not? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to unpack with it because I mean, to I know this will you know no, no one's too bothered about hearing the Premier League side of things, but 
their argument is that it's not quite as simple as just COVID cases. The, the case that Arsenal made was that, yes, they only had one positive case, but they've had a number of cases. I think it's 12 since December the 21st. And that has stretched the squad because what it's meant is that players can't really be rested. Uh, if you look at their game against Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup, for instance, they played pretty much the strongest team they had, which meant people like Bukayo Saka, who was well overdue arrest, had to play. And so the argument is that the injuries are a consequence of COVID-19. Now, I'm aware that opens up another can of worms because where do you draw the line from that? You know, th th there's always a knock-on effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the you know, players being away at the African Cup of Nations, that is something that teams have known about for a long, long time. It's not like that suddenly came out, yeah. came out of nowhere. What, what's also irritated a lot of clubs is that Arsenal have loaned out um, a couple of players which... Had they not, they might have been in a better position to fulfil this fixture. Now, again, there is a counter-argument there because you could say, well, let's say in the case of Foller and Balagoon, who's a young player who I think everyone would agree it's in his interest to get minutes. Do you stunt his development um, in case there's a COVID outbreak or in case you have unavailability? So, you know, some of these things aren't quite as straightforward as they seem, but... I do think that uh, AFCON and injuries are a part of a Premier League season that you you know you have to navigate, and you know the idea that you can get games called off. And Antonio Conte was talking about this in his press conference um, this afternoon for injuries seems a bit far fetched, but. Those are the rules that we have. Arsenal didn't meet the threshold. They were quite a way under it, I'm told. And even and one of the things that's annoyed people is that Granit Xhaka was unavailable because you know, he kicked Diego Jota in the chest. And, you know, it's almost like Arsenal been rewarded for it. I am told that wasn't a contributing factor and they would have met the threshold with or without Xhaka. Um, but it does give you a sense. And then these are the sorts of conversations that are being had in boardrooms at top levels of clubs. Um, these are the sorts of gripes. And that loan thing did piss a lot of people off. Charlie, if we look at the quality on, in, of the under-23 squads in England, they're extremely strong, and Arsenal in particular, um, even with Balogun, obviously, halfway down to Borough by the time Arsenal had asked for the postponement. In France and Spain, for example, they're having to draft in younger players. We've seen kind of Barcelona field 16 and 17-year-olds on their bench uh, in recent weeks due to injuries and COVID and missing players, etc. Is there anything the Premier League could have done or could possibly do in the future to force clubs into using their under-23 squads? Well, the, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting comparison because, yeah, the Liga and the Bundesliga have had zero postponements and the reason is as you say I mean I think in Spain the rule is if you have five first team players you have to play and that's basically a threat you're very very rarely going to get over that threshold Barcelona wanted a game called off though interestingly uh, Xavi did but at exec level they kind of accepted it which does go to show that if the rules are there and they're enforced for everyone then um, you know teams are a lot more accepting my sense from what I've been told, is that there's not a great chance of the rules changing. And the reason is that to do so halfway through a season, the Premier League, think, would would challenge the integrity of the competition. And you, it's not hard to imagine a situation, to be fair, where they did change the rules. And then a team's up in arms because they're saying, well, hold on a sec, a few weeks ago, Arsenal were able to get this game called off, but now we can't because you've just changed the rules midway through a season. So they're really in a difficult spot. 
Um, and, and on the under 23 point, I mean, I, I, I think it's valid. And you look at this was this point was made to me that Marcus Rashford, for instance, made his United debut when they had something like 12 unavailabilities, um, mainly through injury. So, and, and obviously, we you know he scored on his debut and hasn't really looked back. So there is that argument. The, the Premier League countered this by saying again, using this integrity line that you know some people I think find uh, a little vacuous, maybe, but it, it is important to them. They say there is an issue to the integrity of the competition. If, for, let's say, for argument's sake, Burnley, one of the one of the teams fighting relegation, one of the worst teams in the division. If their squad is absolutely decimated and they're playing a bunch of kids away at Man City at the Etihad and get absolutely smashed, then that's not really great for anyone. The integrity of the competition is um, challenged. It's not a good look for the league. But obviously, it's also not a good look for the league when Burnley have played 17 games and are genuinely not far off running out of time to fulfil all their fixtures. Charlie, we, we talk about the sport and integrity being challenged in the league, and you quite rightly say it does nobody any favours if a Burnley academy team gets bet 8 or 9 nil at the Etihad. But I suppose on the flip side of that is the potential problems around the integrity of games that are going to be refixed now when players who would have been uh, injured for the original fixture or were at AFCON or suspended will then be able to play the refixed game. Mm-hmm. Um, and And like you mentioned with Burnley, haven't played 17 games or three or four games behind their relegation rivals in situations where they're going to know exactly what they're going to need to do to get themselves out of trouble potentially. Um, There are probably sporting integrity issues on the flip side that the Premier League have kind of boxed themselves into now. Yeah, and that that exact point has been raised, that they, they may have an advantage. I guess the counter is that Burnley are not a squad set up to be playing two games in a week which is what they're going to have for the rest of the season you know they're going to it's as if they're going to be playing in the European competition essentially the amount of games they're playing and obviously they built a squad very much not with that in mind they built a squad to play one game a week basically you know especially as they're a team that tends to go out quite early in the cup so I don't actually know how much that will help them but it's certainly a weird almost Sunday league feel when you look at the table and you've got I think Burnley have got five games in hand on... Uh, they've played five games less than Manchester City, which is just completely ridiculous. Um, but and, and that has been raised as well, this idea, because I think some of some, there are some leagues that have either done it or are suggesting it that you can't play players who weren't at the club for the rearranged fixture. And again, spoke to a few people about this, and, and, and it actually isn't that popular an idea, but especially I think because some clubs, especially if they're the ones that their opponents postponed games, they feel a little bit, well, you know, January reinforcements is is just sensible squad building and we might have let someone go. It, it then seems like a punishment to us that we've let someone go and the guy we've replaced him with can't play a game that we wanted to play but our opponents couldn't fulfil. So, I mean, but this gives you a sense because I feel with every... Uh, solution that's being offered that there is a problem um it's not that straightforward and that's I, I do have some sympathy with the premier league in the sense that teams their execs their fans are not coming at this from a balanced point of view you know even even in things that are mildly unfair is going to cause a huge amount of uh rage and 
you know, sense that we're being victimized. You only have to look at how teams react to bad refereeing decisions and VAR and talk of conspiracy. So I think it, it, they are in a hard position, but that's not to say that um, they couldn't have handled it better because, of course, they could. And the situation we're in is, is bordering on farcical. And you do wonder, because it is coming up to a point where a team like Burnley just aren't going to have space to play all their games. And the idea of extending the season... I think would be a huge embarrassment for the Premier League, especially when you've got leagues like La Liga that seem to be navigating it a whole lot better. Yeah, and I suppose it does remind me a little bit of the debate around the increased number of substitutes that came up mm. uh, in, in, in the middle of the pandemic, where it seemed to favour larger teams and, and bigger squads uh, with a little bit of depth, where say, for example, a Liverpool or a Manchester City were able to field uh, pretty much an academy team in the early stages of uh, the cup competition, you know, bring in their depth um, from the bench, whereas a Burnley um, and some of the kind of, you know, the weaker teams in the Premier League were still kind of surviving with a, a relatively small squad. And now again, they seem to be punished, um, you know, with that. Yeah, and that's another good example, that, that five subs rule was caused a real schism because and, and Klopp's returned to it now. I think he, he actually used Burnley as an example, didn't he? He he was kicking off about the fact that teams won't vote that in because he's like, this is a player welfare issue um, and it's not safe and, and it's good for the players to have this. But I totally get the counter-argument that all that does is fade, you know, when as if Man City don't have enough advantages. Now, oh, actually, you can bring on Mares and Bernardo Silva and Grealish <laughs> and Sterling if you're in a, you know, an ounce of trouble. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think, um, yeah, I'm not so in favour of that rule, but I can see why, as teams have a more congested schedule, why um, that, that idea might raise its head again. But, I, th- I think you know we are navigating something unprecedented, and what it's done, what the pandemic has done in, over the last few years, has exposed fault lines that were there already. I mean, we saw it straight away, didn't we? When you know, were players going to take wage cuts, and then you know, were were teams going to suffer because the TV companies weren't going to pay them for the games that completed? And and I think naturally, everyone there, there's so much self interest and. That's just playing out at the moment. And with these postponements, it's just really exposing that in a way, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to many people. You know, shock horror, Premier League teams are selfish and money-driven. But it does threaten to get ugly because there is a lot at stake. And and people who we spoke to for this piece, you know, were saying that, um, you know, they're expecting legal action come the end of the season because there, there could be issues over relegation, mm. over Champions League qualification. You think how much money is at stake here and it really, really could get ugly if it hasn't already. Indeed. I mean, so so much of the, the sporting integrity as we've discussed um, has been put into disrepute, which is kind of um, really in opposite to, to how the league is playing out uh, at the top end of things. Um, Charlie, quickly on Spurs while we have you on, I mean, um, I think it's been a quite a mixed start for for Antonio Conte. Um, I think there's kind of murmurs that um, his uh, his two year contract might might be uh, might be just that, and uh, it mightn't be extended. I think he's looking for new transfers as well. What's the feeling around Spurs at the moment? Um, obviously, following following on from um, 
from the Nuno experiment, if if you want to call it that, was kind of nipped in the bud quite early on in the season. <laughs> yeah, experiment may be generous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually only an eighteen month contract for Conte, so it expires at the end of next season. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I mean, if you'd asked me this question a couple of weeks ago ahead of the Chelsea semi-final, I'd have been saying, yeah, you know, five wins and three draws from his eight league games. They're undefeated in the league. They're in a really good position for the top four. Things are looking pretty good. And, and I think it's important to remember that because I do still think we shouldn't lose sight of that they are in a really good position in the league. Um, you know, with their games in hand, they can go pretty comfortably forth. Um, but the, 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 the defeats to Chelsea were quite humiliating. I mean, they were so comfortable. Um, and that has shaken everyone a bit, certainly the fan base. I think internally as well, Antonio Conte, he, he's very demanding. And I, and I genuinely think it was a humiliation to him to go back to Stamford Bridge, the club where he'd managed for two years, won the league, won the FA Cup, um, left in fairly acrimonious circumstances to have his team just battered. And that, I think, really hurt him. And that's why you see him so desperately pushing for these transfers that... Tottenham need, even though he was told when he joined that there wasn't going to be a huge amount of money. He does know that, but I think he's his standards are so high, I think he genuinely just can't quite believe that they won't strengthen because it's so clear that they need to. But, you know, less than two weeks before the window closes and haven't done anything, Adama Traore is one we expect probably will get done. Um, yeah. But they need a lot more than that. But, it's, you know, they're going to have to wait till the summer, really, for the for the major surgery. And even then, you look at the business they did in the summer just gone, a lot of it was swaps, uh, loans, and this kind of thing. I don't think he's going to have a huge kitty, even in the summer. Um, so we'll see. I mean, you know, does his patience snap? I don't, I don't think, you know, I know there's been some talk that that's happened already. I don't think we're quite there yet. And we shouldn't lose sight of, you know, he's, he, is, he is doing a really, really good job. But, you know, there are, um, there are lots of issues in that squad to resolve. And it will be really interesting to see how quickly they are, because if they aren't, he's not going to be happy now. <laughs> and do you suspect Matt Doherty will uh, still be a Spurs player come February? Well, I mean, I think in an ideal world for Tottenham, and sorry to say this, he probably wouldn't be. You know, he is one of the players that they are willing to let go, but I just don't know if that's going to happen. You know, Wolves are one, going back to Wolves is one option. Uh, and this, that, you know, it's a good question on Doherty because that does uh, basically sum it up. They, they really need to get rid of players to bring in players to a large extent. And that's just not happening. Doherty, Delhi, and Dombele, all available. But no real movement on that just yet. Okie doke. Charlie, thanks a million for coming on this evening. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. So we leave it there, so okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>